you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me now to the book of John, John chapter 3, as we continue our look at the 16th verse, as well as cover verses 17 to 21 this morning. Last week we took John 3.16, one of the most famous, widely read, widely regarded verses of Scripture, and we broke it apart piece by piece, section by section, really to try and understand what does it mean? What does it mean that God loved? What does it mean that God's love led to Christ being sent? How did that being sent bring salvation? How do we have faith? How do we trust in Him? And how does that give us new life? Well, this morning we continue on in our passage and we read it not only by itself, but in its context. We remind ourselves that this passage comes in the discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is asking, how can I have eternal life? He wants to know the answer to that question and so Jesus is answering it. But it shouldn't stop there. It's not that Jesus just wants Nicodemus to be saved. It's that he wants Nicodemus to live as if he's saved. Think about it like this. If all there was for us was to be converted, by God's mercy, we would drop dead after our conversion. Right? If that's it, if that's the pinnacle, if that's our goal, our aim... Then after we come to Christ, we would fall over and be with him. But I would argue the scriptures make the point, no, the the task then is to live as if we're saved by Christ. And that's what we see as we continue with verses 17 to 21. It's not only that we are saved by Christ, but we're saved to live for Christ. That's what we'll read this morning. So I do invite you to look with me as I read for us the Word of God. I want to begin in verse 16 and read through the 21st verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please once again bow with me as we ask his blessing upon this time. Oh dear Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us that we may know and trust and hope and rest in you as our Savior And I pray that we might live as if that was true. Lord, give us understanding. Give us your truth this day. May we not just believe, but may we live. 
I pray you do this for your glory and for our good. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Far too many people stop their Christian journey at John 3.16. I've heard people say things like this. I have what I need. I trust in Jesus. I'm done. There's nothing else to do. I believe in him. Now I can live how I want and he's going to cover me in the end. This is my, if you play Monopoly and if you do, I'm sorry, but this is my get out of jail free card. I can do whatever I want because if I get in trouble, I'm getting out. But I do not believe the scriptures tell us to live in that way. We cannot stop at 16. We have to go on. We have to keep reading. And this morning we're going to cover the, the second two points from our passage. Last week we covered point one, Jesus is the plan of salvation. Well, this morning we're going to cover that he's both the anchor and the revealer of, our, of the truth of our hearts. But each of these points, and this is my goal with you this morning, should spur us to something. Each point should drive us to a direction. And so that's what we're going to seek to do this morning. Where are we headed? Where are we going from here in light of what we know? And so let's begin with Jesus being the anchor of our salvation. We go back to verse 16 and it tells us, Out of God's love for the world, He gave His only Son. This giving of Jesus... The sending of Jesus, as verse 17 tells us, is an act of love. It's an act of love by the triune God. Our God so loved his people that he came to save them, really from himself. This is such a great act of love, and it's one we contemplated last week. How great an act was this that God left a place. Jesus in heaven had 10,000 angels at his beck and call. Any whim he could have, any wish he could have, all he had to do was open his mouth to speak and it would be brought to him. It would be delivered. And consider again, as we talked about last week, to leave that and go to a place that you're so tired that you fall asleep on a ship in the middle of a storm. I don't some of you may have spent a great deal of time on ships. I can't sleep on a boat or a ship. It's not happening. Can you imagine being so tired that your only option is to nap in the middle of a storm and then to get mad at your, at your apostles because they wake you up? What are you doing? I'm trying to take a nap. <laughs> Come on. To be sad, to weep over the loss of a friend, to be hungry, to be homeless. That is what Jesus willingly brought himself through to bring salvation to the people of God. That is the act of love that verse 16 speaks to. We are meant to see that Jesus' act of salvation that is coming into the world, as verse 17, 16 and 17 tell us, was not 
to bring judgment. That's what verse 17 says here. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Verse 16 says it's an act of love that Jesus came. Verse 17 says, and it's not an act of condemnation, of judgment. Does that change how you think about our God? To hear it and to see it in these terms? Maybe you've heard like me that, that God is, the Christian God is a, a galactic judge. He's mean. He's one who punishes all those who does not do what he wants, who doesn't follow the Ten Commandments like we read earlier. You can picture him, or, or this is not true, but some do, as a, um, as a being playing a galactic game of whack-a-mole. He's got the hammer, and we're the little moles frantically trying to get a breath of air before we get shoved back down. Submit, yield, I'm in charge, go back to your place. Sadly, a lot of people in the world, that's how they consider our God. But what does verses 16 and 17 together tell us? God sent his son out of love. God sent his son for the purpose of salvation, not of condemnation. It was not to bring judgment. <laughs> and I say that, and I know where your mind's going. It's just where mine did when I read that. It's to look down to verse 19. And this is the judgment. So how can verse 17 and verse 19 be true? How can Jesus come for salvation out of an act of love and yet it bring judgment and he not be judging because of it? You could also look at other passages like John 5.22 where Jesus says, The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 30 of the same chapter says Jesus judges justly. When Jesus came the first time, he came as the lamb. He came as a sacrifice. That was his goal. That was his intention. That was his purpose, to live a life of full obedience, to be sacrificed three years later on, um, at 33, after he started his ministry, to be sacrificed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, that we who trust in him might live Verse 16. That was his goal, his intention, his purpose. But what do we do with those who don't believe? What do we do with those who don't trust in him, who don't rest in him? Aren't they judged? Not because he's judging them, not because he's pointing at them, but because they reject the truth. We also could think about it like this. Jesus in his first coming came as the lamb the book of Revelation, though, says in his second coming, he comes as what? The lion. When Christ comes back on the white horse, his name is Justice or Judgment, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on my memory right here, and he comes with the scepter in his hand that comes out of his mouth that is the word of God, that is the truth, he then reckons all to give an account for their lives. So Jesus can be both judge 
and one who does not come to judge. Jesus comes to save, and out of a consequence of that salvation, he can weigh people against it. Why is this such a big deal? Why does this matter? Why spend enough, so much time and effort and energy on this? Well, it's a simple question with a simple answer. What side are you going to land on? Are you going to be on the side that sees Jesus as Savior, or are you going to be on the side that sees Him as judge? He will uphold His justice. On the day of judgment, when God asks all to give an account for their lives, you're either going to say, the only reason I deserve to be here is because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, verse 316, or you're going to say, I did not know him. I did it my way, how I wanted, the way I wanted, because I wanted. He's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Why? Because verse 18, those who are judged are judged because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Again, I, I want to be overly simplistic here. Trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will live. Reject him and you will face eternal judgment because of it. That's what the text says. It's clearly here, 316 through 318. All of us will give a reckoning for our lives. Why is it so bad to reject God? Well, not only is it a violation of at least the first three of the commandments that we read earlier, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make unto me any graven images, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, but it's also blasphemy. It's blasphemy against a high king, your creator. It's not just he's king over us, he's our maker. He designed us and he calls us to worship him. And man looks in the face of God and says, no. My favorite sermons by a pastor named Paul Washer, the most shocking youth message. He has an analogy in there where he creates, God creates the waters and he says, waters, you come this far and you stop and the waters say, yes, God. And he looks at the stars and says, stars, you stay at this point in the heavens. And they say, yes, God. And he goes on and on. He tells the animals, you shall act in this way. And they say, yes, God. And then he looks at man and he says, now, man, you love me. And man, the only thing in all creation looks back and says, no. Man is condemned because he has not believed. And that is such a condemnation what does it say? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but who does not believe is condemned already. Noted as it's certain, it's a statement, it's a fact. He who does not believe is condemned. One of my favorite children's groups, and that's <laughs> probably the only groups I listen to nowadays, is a group called Slugs and Bugs. If you have children or just want some just really good music, go look up a group called Slugs and Bugs. They sing silly songs about this world and 
about things that are interesting to children, like slugs and bugs. But then they'll throw in these occasional songs that are just pure, raw scripture. And one of my favorite CDs they have, uh, they have a song, and it's called Romans 8, 1 and 2. And here are the words, the lyrics to that song. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's the song, four or five times. It's hard right now, I'm holding it back. It's back there in the back of my tongue. I'm trying not to break into it. But I can't make this text any simpler than that. Flee condemnation by trusting in Christ. Flee Christ, receive condemnation. You who are in Christ are free. You are not condemned. Now I told you these verses tell us what to do. And we've seen here that Jesus is the anchor, the surety, the guarantor of our salvation. So what do we do? How does this spur us to action? What does this mean, particularly for the Christian? John Calvin says this, There is now no reason why any man should be in a state of hesitation or of distress or anxiety as to the manner in which he may escape death. When we believe, it's the purpose of God that Christ would deliver us from it. Jesus Christ is the anchor of our salvation. So what do we do with this knowledge? We fish. We fish knowing with absolute certainty our boat will not move. The storms will not overtake it. The rocks will not damage its hull. We fish in full confidence that I am secure. You know, like fishing metaphors, how about this? Live as if you are saved. Believe it. Act it out. Carry it into your workplace. Carry it into the conversations with your family. Carry it in how you raise your children. Carry it in how you live your day-to-day lives. We serve a God who already knows tomorrow before today. We serve a God who holds our lives in His hands. And so we're called, because Jesus is the anchor of our salvation, to live. Because of verse 316 and what it has purchased, we then believe John 317 and then we go live. But that's not all. We're compelled to keep going. This text pulls us forward. We see in the second section here, or the third section, that Jesus reveals the truth. And he does it with this, this beautiful dichotomy. It's a, it's a simple dichotomy, but it makes perfect sense. Light and darkness. Those are simple truths that we all understand, right? When there's light, we can see. When there's darkness, we can't. When there's darkness in the room, you turn on the light, the darkness is gone. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. One time I had to serve on a jury. I got selected for jury duty. 
This person was being tried for some vandalism and some, some theft and things like that. And one of the biggest pieces of the case had to do with the fact that this person on video went onto this property, picked up a five-gallon bucket that was sitting by a street light on their property. And the first thing this person did upon arriving on that property was to pick up this five-gallon bucket and throw it at the street light. And I remember that person arguing, I just wanted to throw a bucket. And the argument was made, no, you wanted to put out the light. Why? Why was that person insistent on putting out the light so that people couldn't see their deeds? You see, when there's light, there's truth, there's exposure, there's reality. When there's darkness, we can sneak around, we can get away with more. And Jesus says here that those who are evil desire, love, crave the darkness because they don't want the light. They don't want the truth. They don't want Christ. They don't want salvation. It conceals their deeds and their desires. And it's terrifying. To come to Christ is to lay ourselves bare. It is to stand naked before our God, exposed. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? When they sinned against God, what is their first thought? We are naked. We are revealed. God might see us like this. We've got to hide in darkness. In the shadows. He cannot see us for what we are, for then he'll see us for what we are. Not realizing God's omniscient, and he always sees us for what we are. I think that's why many people really struggle to come to Christ, to trust in him. It's to admit to him, God, this is what I am. I'm a mess. This is what you'd get with me. I don't know if you want this. I don't have a lot here. But verse 21 tells us, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their works have been carried out by God. It's true, being in the light exposes us. But what does being in the light also do? It provides sight. It provides understanding. It provides the ability to see what is around us, to not be afraid or scared. Have you ever had this happen? Have you had someone in your house move a piece of furniture without you knowing it? And then you get up in the middle of the night for a glass of water or to go to the bathroom and you're kind of wandering around because you've got your house memorized and that piece of furniture is not where it's supposed to be and then there you go over it. Nobody? Oh, I have. Because <laughs> in the dark there's no sight. There's no seeing. But if we would but turn the light on, we can navigate what's before us and around us, can't we? Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word, the word of God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If you want to really understand this principle, grab a light. Next time you have to walk in the dark, get a flashlight out. 
Or if you're outside, you're, you're, you're camping, or you're at your house, but it's dark outside, take a light with you. See how much better you can see. And then realize that that's what God's, does, God's word does for us. It helps us see. And so how does this second point spur us to action? We turn on the light. When we've got that business deal and we're wondering if this is a good deal for our company, we ask, is this a moral deal according to the word of God? Would this deal fit with God's word or are they going to ask me to shave some corners and, and make some decisions that aren't quite in line with truth? When we ask ourselves, should I date this person or that person? Well, are they a believer? Are they equally yoked with you? And here's the real test. Does being with them make you want to know God more? Does being with them cause you want to want to know your God better? Turn on the light. We ask the questions of our hearts. We ask the questions that we want, we need to know the answers to. We ask God, God help me, and then we turn on our light and we look for the answer. But then here's the trick. When you get it, use it. When you hear the answer, whether it's the answer you want it or not, use it. Don't go back to the darkness. Now, I just want to conclude this morning by saying I'm, I'm not trying to make the case for a works-based salvation or religion. I'm, I'm not saying we obey God so he'll give us light and give us the answers to our heart's questions. I don't think this, this section makes that case. I think this section's intentional. We read John 3.16 before we read John 3.17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and 21. That's important. I want to make sure you get this. Salvation precedes the call to obedience. This is not the only place in Scripture we see this, but because God is anchor of our salvation, we then walk in the light. It's not so that he will save us, but because he has saved us. What did God want for Nicodemus? What did Jesus hope for Nicodemus? That he would believe. But not just believe, that he would live as if his life had been changed. What does God want for you and me today? That we believe. That we believe in him. But not just that we would believe. That we would live as if our lives had been changed. That is what Jesus proclaims to Nicodemus and he proclaims to you and to me today. We're called to believe and have eternal life. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we love your word. We love the truth it contains. Lord, so many times we're wandering around in the darkness. We're trusting ourselves. We're trusting our works. We're trusting our ways. We want what we want, and we don't care what you say or what you think or what you believe. Forgive us, O oh Lord. And even those of us who have seen the light and do trust in Jesus, it is so tempting to go back in that dark room. It is so tempting to walk back into that way of living, that lifestyle, that, that mindset. And so may we remember Jesus is anchoring our salvation. We are saved, that is sure, that is certain, that is guaranteed. But also through and by his word, we don't have to wander around aimlessly. We have the light 
As we will hear later on in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He himself is our light, and through him we see and we believe. Thank you, Lord, for your word and this time you've given us to gather together. We ask that you blessed once again in Christ's name. Amen.